We'll open our Bibles again to John chapter 8. And we are still examining the dialogue of Jesus' discourse at the Feast of the Tabernacles. I haven't counted, but I think this is about the seventh message or so that began in John 7, 1, and we'll go through the end of this chapter. And don't lose heart, we will get to the end. I promise we will. I was talking with a friend of mine in Columbus yesterday, and he said that they were in the Gospel of Matthew, and I said, well... I visited your church like three years ago when you were in Matthew. He goes, yeah, we're still there. (laughs) It takes time, but hopefully it's worth it and you've been blessed by our time together. So as we look at this teaching in the tabernacle again, or teaching in the temple at the Feast of the Tabernacles, we're reminded of some of the things that Jesus has said thus far. He declared himself to be the light of the world, thus being a fulfillment of one of the most important components within the Feast of the Tabernacles, and that is the lighting ceremony. He also declared himself to those who would believe in him to give to us streams of living water, thus fulfilling the water pouring ceremony that was also very important in the Feast of the Tabernacles. He's declared himself to be not only the light of the world, but he said that if you believe in me, you will no longer walk in darkness, which indicates that if we are not believing in him, if we are not his disciple, if we have not given our lives to Christ, then we are still in the darkness. He would go on to say in this most recent section, in verse 31 of John chapter 8, he said to the Jews who had believed in him, these had made a profession of faith to him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Now, if something is going to make you free, the implication of that is that you're not free. And what Jesus intends to communicate as he goes through this passage of Scripture that we're going to look at, is that the Jewish people who have made a profession of faith in him, in fact, are walking in darkness and are enslaved to their sin, is what Jesus identifies in verse 34. So he asserts to them that they are still slaves of sin unless they come to believe in him. That belief in him is not just intellect, it's not just emotion, but it is also an act of the will where we intentionally give ourselves to him and commit to live a life for him. As a disciple, Jesus explains that we are going to continue in his word. It's not enough to make a profession of faith and go on and live however you please. We must continue to live in the word that Jesus has given to us. And you and I have the benefit of the completed revelation. Everything that we need to know about God how to honor Him, how to please Him, why we should love Him, the provision that He has made for us, all of it is contained in His Holy Word. We are to continue in that Word. As we continue in the truth, Jesus declares that the truth will make you free, therefore freeing you from the slavery of your sin. We looked at this very quickly the last time we were together, that we experience freedom from spiritual death, We will be given eternal life to live with God in heaven forever. We've been freed from the rightful judgment of God. We've been freed from the righteous condemnation of God. We've been freed from the power and the bondage of sin. We've been freed to live a life to Him and for Him. That is a freedom that we often fail to celebrate in our lives. We love to celebrate the freedom that exists in America. And we have a country 
unlike any other, but I'll tell you this, the freedom that we have in Christ is greater than any freedom you and I can experience while we consider ourselves to be privileged Americans in this land of liberty. He goes on to discuss this freedom that we have, and as he's doing this, the Jews will staunchly defend their ancestry from Abraham. This continues to be a point of contention that we'll explore through our passage today. So the Jewish people depended upon their lineage to give them a spiritual privilege with God, meaning they could do whatever they wanted to do, live however they wanted to live, and because they were the privileged chosen people of God, they had no need for freedom. They didn't talk about repentance. Their ancestry as people covered under the Abrahamic covenant for them equated spiritual freedom and there was no need to listen to the words of Christ. There was no reason to come and believe in Him. They were perfectly content the way they were. They were spiritually free. They were in bondage to no one. Jesus explains that if anyone is practicing sin, then they are enslaved to sin. It's not someone who sins, but someone who lives a lifestyle of sin. And by Jesus' evaluation of the Jewish people and his knowledge of the Jewish religion, he could say with absolute clarity that they were living a life of sin. Jesus' desire in this freedom is to take us out of a position of slavery and to make us the children of God, sons and daughters of the Most High God. We often hear in our culture people talking about the fatherhood of God. And when you hear people talking about the fatherhood of God, you need to be very careful that they don't believe that there's some nationalistic or universal father God because that isn't true. To them who believed in Him, He gave the right to become the children of God. Just because we're Americans and this country was birthed out of a desire to have religious liberty and to pursue a relationship with God, that doesn't mean that all Americans are Christians, right? Not all Baptists who have grandfathers and great-grandfathers who were preachers are going to be Christians. It just doesn't work that way. Ancestry is what the Jewish people staked their hope in and Jesus is going to make the point that this is not the most important thing. In fact, it is a false sense of safety in the mind of the Jew. So let's look at our passage of Scripture here. John 8, verses 37 through 47, as he continues his dialogue with those who had professed to believe in him. Verse 37, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. And they said to him, we were not born of fornication, we have one father, God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father... You would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but He sent me. 
Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth... You do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe in me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. Now we hear the continuing theme that is repeated in this entire dialogue that takes place at the Feast of the Tabernacles. It is who Jesus is, where He has come from, why He is here, who they really are, the delusion of who they think they might be. And this continues to get repeated over and over in this dialogue with the Jews. But now most pointedly at those who had made a profession of faith in Him. We'll look at our passage in five little sections. The first one is this. It is the concession. Jesus makes a concession, verse 37a, I know that you are Abraham's descendants. He's not giving in. He's not affirming what they believe. What he is simply saying would be the equivalent of saying, I know that you're Jewish. I know that you are feeling entitled because you are under the covenant of Abraham. He says you are physical descendants of Abraham. Yes, you can claim to be the physical descendant of Abraham, but there's a great difference between being physically related to Abraham and being spiritually related to Abraham. Paul would make this point incredibly clear in his writings. And if anybody understood the distinction about what it meant to be a true Jew, it was Paul. He was a Pharisee. He trained under the most noted Rabbi Gamaliel. And here's what he records in Romans chapter 2. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. Paul would continue to refute this false sense of security amongst his Jewish brethren through his entire ministry. And this is what Jesus is encountering right here. They believe that because they are physically the descendants of Abraham, they stand in a privileged spiritual position. They have no need for Christ. They have no need to be made free. They have no need to repent. They are absolutely fine just the way they are. This elicits a conflict in Jesus' mind. Number two, he says in verse 37b, Yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Yes, you are the descendants of Abraham, but there's a problem with your profession. Even though you are physically a descendant of Abraham, you are trying to kill me because my word has no place in you. This conflict centers around the reality that they seek to kill Jesus. This desire to terminate Jesus' life to end his ministry and his influence, has been percolating for the begin, from the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It's not yet reached its conclusion. It will do so in six months when Jesus returns back to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. But they already have this desire. It's unknown if there's a specific plan in place. But Jesus will not go away until the providential time that has been set by God. Now, Jesus identifies the main reason that they desire to kill him. He says, you have no place in you for my words. 
Now remember, Jesus is talking to people who have already made a profession of faith and have said, we believe in you. He's talking to those who have said, yeah, we get it. We agree. We want to be followers of you. His words clash with their prejudices in such a way that they can't accept the things that he is teaching them. Because his teaching challenges their fundamental religious biases, they desire to end his life and to kill him. Now, if you know anything about Israel's history, we know this. When the prophet showed up to confront them with their sin and to tell them of the impending doom that was coming, what was their reaction? Go away. We don't want to hear what you have to say. Leave us alone. We're fine the way we are. The prophet was unrelenting. He would continue to preach the message that God had given to him. And what was the result of every one of Israel's prophets? They were killed. By whom? By the people they were sent to prophesy to. This is a consistent pattern in Israel's history. When anything clashes with a religious bias or it upsets their fundamental bias, they seek to kill the one who is delivering this message. Earlier in this chapter, when the people were hearing Jesus teach, they were amazed at what He was saying, and many concluded that this was in fact the Christ. When the Christ comes, He's not going to teach better than this. He's not going to perform more miracles than this. And here's what the result of that was in John 7.32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about Him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers out to seize Him. They didn't like His popularity. They didn't like the fact that he had a following. They didn't like the content of his teaching, and their intent was to end his influence. At the end of this chapter, when this dialogue finishes, we'll read these words in John 8, 59, Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Their desire, at the end of this dialogue, is to stone Jesus in the temple, even though there was a Roman prohibition against ending anybody's life, they desire, at the end of this conversation, to kill Jesus on the spot. The bottom line is this. Those who have no room for the words of Christ in their lives do not follow God. It doesn't matter what they say. If they say, hey, I'm a believer, but I just stick to the Old Testament, then they don't believe in Christ. If they say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but they don't crack the Bible, they don't have any room for obedience to the Word of God, they are not followers of God. In fact, they can't claim to be God's child, but are very, very likely real enemies of the cross and of Christ. Jesus has already explained that true followers are going to continue in His Word. It implies that we initially accept the Word, and then we're going to devote ourselves into continuing in the truth of that Word. But these people who have professed to believe in Him can't accept His words. They're certainly not going to continue in His Word. They just don't have any room for it. The contrast to this, the conflict that Jesus exposes in number two here, is that they follow their Father. Now, He doesn't identify yet who the Father is, but the implication here is that you're not following the Father Abraham as you claim to. Verse 38, I speak the things which I have seen with my Father, Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your Father. Jesus indicating that all that He has said 
and all that He has done has has come to pass because He has heard them from the Father. But here He says that I have seen them with My Father. Meaning, I have been with the Father. No Jew could ever claim such a thing. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your Father. Jesus again states that all He has said has come directly from the Father. He didn't originate it. He didn't make it up. He didn't come on the scene to try to get a big following. In fact, He's going to have His life ended by these that He's teaching and He's preaching too. He's come to set His people free from their sins. He's come to complete the plan of redemption. He's come to fulfill the hidden revelation. And these people are privileged to be in the audience of Christ and they still have no room for Him or for His words. The unbelieving Jew is not doing the things that they have heard from the Father. They're not doing the things that they have heard or seen in the Father they claim in Abraham. And Jesus is going to develop this a little bit further in the remaining part of this passage. So Jesus is saying, in a not-so-subtle way, that Abraham is really not your father. Even though you claim to be his descendants, even though you have great security in your ancestry and in your lineage, you are not a follower of Abraham. Abraham was a man who believed God, a man who was faithful to God, a man who obeyed God. That is not true of the people that have now professed to be believers in Jesus Christ. So the third thing that we see here now is the claim repeated by the Jewish people. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. You should hear a tone of disdain, of anger. It would be a pounding of the podium when they double down on their assertion that regardless of what Jesus says, they are the descendants of Abraham and there's not anything that you can say that's going to change our mind. We stand firm and our ancestry, we are secure in our privileged spiritual position, and we don't have a room for anything that you have to say. They understand that Jesus is asserting that they have a father other than the one that they claim, and a result of his accusation that they are following a different father, they are insistent in living, they're insistent that they are living up to the moral and ethical standard of Abraham. That is why they doubled down. They believe that because they are studiers of the law and they have this ancestry from Abraham, that they are perfectly fine. In their minds, they are the true descendants of Abraham, not only physically, but also spiritually. I came across this analogy that brings this point home in a way that you and I might not necessarily understand without. So I read this story about Jonathan Edwards. You know Jonathan Edwards. He was an early 18th century preacher. He's been called one of the most influential theologians in all of America. He preached during the great period of the Great Awakening where hundreds and thousands of people came to Christ. Cities and communities and towns were changed. Here was Jonathan Edwards' most famous quote. He says, Resolution 1, I will live for God. Resolution 2, if no one else does, I still will. That's what Jonathan Edwards says. So here's an illustration of this ancestry, as the Jew would understand it, as being descendants of Abraham. Jonathan and Sarah Edwards had a couple of children. Edwards 
is regarded as America's greatest theologian and his offspring included, listen to this, 13 college presidents, 65 professors, three United States senators, three mayors of large cities, three state governors, and a vice president of the United States. Now you'd say, wow, that's a pretty impressive ancestry, isn't it? But one would be wrong to conclude that possessing the Edwards blood guaranteed civic virtue for the highest ranking member of this line became one of the most godless villains in American history. Edwards's grandson, Aaron Burr, served as vice president of the United States. However, he displayed the very opposite of his grandfather's character. Burr rejected the Christian faith, murdered the great statesman Alexander Hamilton, betrayed his country, and plotted to crown himself emperor of Mexico. A poet said of him, eight lines of clergymen converged to meet an Aaron Burr, but Aaron was Beelzebub in mocking miniature. You see, just because you have a quote-unquote great name does not mean that you possess the same virtue of those individuals. In the exact same way, the so-called descendants of Abraham did not share in the spiritual lineage of the father that they claimed such a close allegiance to. Physical heritage means absolutely nothing. The challenge that we see here in number four is expressed in the second part of verse 39. They have insisted that they are the true descendants of Abraham. And Jesus said to them, If you are Abraham's children, then do the deeds of Abraham. Do what Abraham did. Live the life. Walk the walk. Do the deeds. Live out the same kind of faithfulness, the same kind of obedience, the same kind of virtue. If you really are the true descendants of Abraham, then your lives are going to reflect the same kind of life that Abraham had. Here's what God said about Abraham after he died, and the mantle of leadership was being passed to his son Isaac. Here's what's recorded in Genesis 26.5. Because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. If this was anybody's epitaph, it would be the greatest thing that could ever be said about you for the omniscient, omnipotent God to look down and say, He was faithful, He was obedient, He was loyal. Would you like to have that said about you? Do you think this can be said about the Jews of Jesus' day? This is the moral and ethical standard that Abraham has been celebrated for. If you were to read... Romans chapter 4, it is an emphasis on the life and the faith and the obedience of Abraham, the example that he set. Paul would write in Galatians 3, 6-14, great highlights about the life of Abraham, heralding him as a great virtuous man of God that all would do well to emulate and to follow in their lives. Abraham listened to God's voice and did what he told him to do. This is what God said about the nation of Israel right around the time of the exile, which would be consistent with what was read in Psalm 106 as we read this morning. Here's what God says. It didn't make it. It's a late edition. Here's what God says in Hosea 4, verse 1 and 2. Listen closely. Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. He's speaking to the nation of Israel. There is swearing 
deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Are those the deeds of Abraham? Is that the virtue of Abraham? Is that the kind of life that Abraham is celebrated for in our New Testament? Absolutely not. So what Jesus says in common vernacular, put up or shut up. If you claim to be the descendants of Abraham, then you've got to do the deeds of Abraham. Live the life that he lived. Possess the virtue that he possessed. Be a man who are faithful and obedient to the things that God has told you to do. In much the same way that Abraham was faithful and loyal to what God told him to do, Jesus is that much more on a grander scale. He has come straight from the throne of God, speaking the very words of God out of his intimate union with God. He speaks truth because he is truth, and all men need to listen to this truth because apart from that we walk in darkness destined to live a life of separation from God for all of eternity. These falsely professing Christians, these new disciples of Christ, have no place for the words of Christ, and they certainly aren't going to do the things that Christ is telling them to do, just like the religious leaders that they so closely follow. Jesus goes on in this challenge in verses 40 and 41a, but as it is, You are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. Abraham was not a murderer. Abraham was a loyal, faithful, obedient servant of God. And yet they seek to kill him, unlike anything that Abraham would ever do, and they just blatantly continue to reject the word of the Lord, unlike Abraham himself, whom they claim to be descendants of. Number four, we're going to see the condescension here from the religious leaders in the second part of verse 41. They said to him, we were not born of fornication, we have one Father, God. Now, when you read that, it's a very clear reference to the circumstances of Jesus' birth. Now, if you were to go back and read in John 6.42, they have politely acknowledged, as they've heard this man show up and teach these amazing things and claim to be from God, they politely acknowledge that, isn't this the son of Joseph? Well, here they're taking off the gloves. This is the most insulting thing that they could possibly say to Jesus in this moment. It is this, you are illegitimate. We were not born of fornication like you were. We have one Father, and that is God. You know, in a small village like Nazareth, it would have been impossible to conceal the pregnancy of an unmarried woman, especially one who was the age of Mary, likely 14, 15, 16 years old. It was scandalous to be pregnant and not be married. So even though they would politely acknowledge that he was the son of Joseph, they know the circumstances of Jesus' birth. What they say here is, we have one father, unlike you, who has two fathers. Right? You see, he has, Jesus has Joseph, the father who raised him, and Jesus has the biological father who conceived him. We're not illegitimate like you, Jesus, we are the true descendants of Abraham, and we only have one father, and that is God. Beyond the subtlety of this smear, 
that they have now thrown at Jesus in this very public setting is their assertion that you can say that we aren't Abraham's descendants, okay, but you can't deny the fact that we are the sons of God. Isn't that right? The nation of Israel is God's chosen people, a peculiar people that He has called out of all of the world for Himself. The Old Testament is filled with verses that would affirm that reality. For example, Exodus 4.22, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Deuteronomy 14.1 and 2, You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave your forehead for the sake of the Lord, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to, to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So while it is true that in a national sense, God is the Father of the nation of Israel, it is not true in the spiritual sense that God is the Father of those who have rejected the words of Jesus Christ. You know, all throughout Israel's history, there is a true Israel and there is a false Israel. You can trace this back to the seed. You had the seed of Cain and you had the seed of Abel. The seed of Abel is the righteous seed. The seed of Cain is the unrighteous seed. In the life of Abraham, you had the promise that was given to the righteous seed of Isaac. And you had the unrighteous seed of Ishmael, although he was divinely blessed, would continue to be a curse against the nation of Israel. There is this spiritual seed that is in the nation of Israel that is true Israel. There is this unrighteous seed that mumbles and murmurs and complains and is idolatrous and leads to the wandering that takes place spiritually all throughout Israel's history. That is the unrighteous seed. Saving faith was proven in the nation of Israel by their love for God and their obedience to the commands that He had given to them. We read in Deuteronomy 10.16, Circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. The nation, nation of Israel could not claim the fatherhood of God and live however they chose to live, disregarding the clear teaching and substituting with their hollow man-made religion and claim a proper ancestry back to Abraham. You know, it's exactly the same way today. When you and I make a profession of faith to give our lives to Christ, for Him to be our Lord and a Savior, it is not a license to live our lives any way that we please. There is an expectation that we are going to live a life that is wholly devoted to the Lord, one that seeks to imitate the life of Christ and moves forward into being conformed to the image of Christ. You see, apart from that, there's some kind of deficiency in how we are continuing in the Word. Now we've come to the last point here, number five. We're going to see the confrontation. This is where Jesus puts it out as plain as He possibly can about who these Jewish people really are and who their Father truly is. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love Me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on My own initiative but He sent me. The first thing that Jesus says here is that not only do I believe that Abraham is not your father, I'm also telling you that God is not your father. The accuracy of anyone's claim to have God as their father is proven by one thing. You see it? 
The one thing that proves that God is our Father is our love for Christ. We can have a generic love for God and a disdain for Jesus. We're not children of God. He's not our Father. We can blacken out all the teachings that we don't like and substitute it with our own preferences, our sinful desires, and be content to live a life that way. And a good chance God is not our Father. Those who profess love for God and reject the one who proceeded forth from God cannot be true children of God. Jesus said back in John 5.23, He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. He will say, eventually in John 15.23, He who hates Me hates My Father also. There is no distinction. You can't have a generic love for God and a hatred for the Son and be a child of God. It just is not going to happen. Jesus continues to emphasize that He has come from the Father, that He is in the Father, and the Father is in Him, and those that truly love God will also love Me. Not only isn't God your Father, but you don't hear Me. You don't hear the words that I'm saying. Verse 43, why do you not understand what I'm saying? It's a rhetorical question that Jesus quickly answers on His own. It is because you cannot hear My Word. Jesus answers His own question as He's already said in verse 37 that they are incapable of truly hearing the content of Jesus' teaching. It isn't because He's teaching in parables. It isn't because He's masking His message with some kind of veiled meaning. He's speaking plainly and clearly, addressing their need and exposing the fallacy of their faith, exposing their false security and their ancestry and their heritage, and they simply reject it. The third thing he says here is that your father is actually the devil. It is Satan himself. Verse 44a, you are of your father the devil. It isn't Abraham, and it's certainly not God. Your father is the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. Physically, I will give you that you are the descendants of Abraham, but spiritually, you are the descendants of God's eternal enemy, Satan himself. He says that you have the desires of your father, and he identifies what this is. Typically, there's a pretty clear resemblance between fathers and their children, isn't it? There's some, there's some physical similarities. Often the voices sound very similar. The mannerisms are uncanny. Sometimes there's the same hobbies and interests and skills. Not always. Jesus is making it clear that the Jews most resemble not Abraham and certainly not God, but Satan himself. There's two chief desires here that Jesus identifies. The first one is murder. Verse 44b, he says, He was a murderer from the beginning. This is most likely a reference to the fall when Adam and Eve chose to disregard the only command that God had given to them. And it introduced into Adam's life spiritual death. And it brought about to the human race physical death. He was a murderer from the very beginning. But it probably isn't limited to just the fall. We need to remember that we have a real, living, actual enemy. He's not a fantasy. He's not a fable. He's not an allegory. 
He's not some kind of fictitious, red-suited, pitchfork character. He is a very real being who was a murderer from the very beginning. Peter would describe him in this way. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We need to remember that he cares absolutely nothing for humanity. He seeks, he, he seeks to bring death and destruction to everyone, even to those who would willingly serve him. Mankind is just a pawn in his war against God, and he cares absolutely nothing of what becomes of us. He doesn't mourn when we suffer. He isn't sorrowful at the tragedy that He has initiated in our life. He sits back and just watches the train wreck unfold and chuckles because that's who He is. Just as Satan's desire is murderous towards mankind, these Jews seek to kill Jesus, which is consistent with their father, the devil. Inconsistent with God and inconsistent with Abraham. The second desire that Jesus identifies here is the abandonment of truth. Verse 44c. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now this also likely refers back to the fall when Satan would enter into the garden in the form of a serpent and deceive Eve into believing that God's word was not true. You're not going to die. God's making that up. He's depriving you of something good. Look at it. It looks attractive. It smells good. I bet it tastes wonderful. Don't you just want to try it? Satan is an absolute abandonment of the truth. He doesn't stand in it. There's no truth in him. Everything he says is a lie. We read this in 2 Corinthians 11.14. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. That's certainly not limited to the fall, is it? Satan continues to deceive people into thinking the truth is a lie and the lie is the truth. Whenever Satan speaks, he speaks his native language coming from his nature, which is an absolute lie and contradictory to the truth of God. Like the Father, like their father rather, the Jews reject the truth and instead choose to live in the deception that God is their father because of their perceived spiritual privilege as the physical descendants of Abraham. Verse 45, Jesus goes on to say, but because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. The children of God will so love the truth that they will believe in Jesus the children of the devil will be so characterized by lies that they will not be able to accept the truth precisely because it is truth. They are incapable of accepting the truth because it's truth. That is what's inherent in the abandonment of truth that Satan doesn't stand in it. He doesn't have anything to say that is truthful. His nature is to be deceitful and deceptive. The cause of their unbelief is that they reject the truth. Unbelief is explained in this section of this dialogue, but belief is not. It's addressed in chapter 6 as we've already studied. So here's an interesting thought. How do people who are trapped in sin 
unwittingly following the devil, following the ways of the world, giving themselves to the pleasures of the world, how did these people ever come to understand and believe the truth? John 6.37 All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. You see, our ability to believe in Christ is attributed to His choosing of us and the Father's giving of us to Him as an inheritance. It makes God's grace even more amazing to know that even when we were entirely trapped and dominated by our sin with absolutely no way out, God opened our eyes, gave us a heart to believe, and enabled us to become His children. You see, that's amazing grace. God doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. God awakening those who were dead in their sin and drawing them into this personal relationship with him. The fourth thing that Jesus says in this confrontation is this, I am sinless. Now, it might seem kind of odd that that sits there, but there's a very specific purpose here. Verse 46, which of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe in me? So here Jesus asks two rhetorical questions, and each addresses a very particular issue. They wanted to kill him, but for what sin can they prove him guilty of that is deserving of death? See, Jesus states his impeccability, a theological word that means I am absolutely and completely without sin. Which of you can convict me of any sin? Now, he didn't say who can accuse me of a sin because they already have, right? They've accused him of breaking the Sabbath by healing the man on the Sabbath day, time to take his mat. They've accused him of blasphemy because he's claimed to be with the Father, from the Father, speaking the words of the Father. But Jesus is saying, how can you convict me of any sin? You can't do that. But yet you want to kill me. He's refuted the blasphemy by successfully debating why he can heal on the Sabbath and they can heal, excuse me, they can circumcise on the Sabbath. He can also refute his claim to be God, from God, with God, by the signs and the miracles and the wonders that he's performed. How could anyone deny the things that Jesus has done and not attribute to him some kind of divine power? They can't convict him of a single sin, and yet they still want to kill him. The second purpose in these rhetorical questions, the second issue is this. The reason for their unbelief, if they can't prove him guilty of sin... It implies that he is actually telling the truth about who he is and about what they need and why then can't you believe me? If I'm telling the truth, if I am without sin, why is it that you cannot believe in me? If someone in your life consistently lies to you and you continually catch them in in those lies, if they were to make some kind of an unusual claim, you would probably say, yeah, right, I've heard that before. You just lie all the time. I can't believe anything that you say. On the other hand, someone who always speaks the truth, who's always been 
truthful with you when they make some kind of unusual claim, aren't you inclined to believe them? So here is Jesus who says, I am without sin. You can't prove me, of, of, prove me guilty of any sin. I speak the truth. I don't tell any lies. And yet you still can't believe in me. You see, Jesus' sinless perfection means that we can trust what he says and he is worthy of our belief. He makes the final point here, number five, is this. God's children hear him when he speaks. Verse 47. He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. Perhaps the most scathing indictment any Jew could ever hear is this. God is not your father. It would shake them to their core. But because they believe Jesus to be a liar, because they believe Jesus to be a sinful man, they aren't going to hear his words. And Jesus simply says, the true children of God, hear my words, and they will respond to them as they should. You don't respond to them because you are incapable of hearing them. We'll see this in John 10.27 down the road. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Jesus has exposed the false hope of security that the Jews sought in being Abraham's descendants. They claim to be the children of Abraham, both in lineage and in faith, and Jesus has made it clear to them that spiritually speaking, they are not from Abraham, they are not from God, they are in fact from Satan himself. Unless they repent and come to believe in Jesus as the light of the world, they will continue to walk in darkness, suffering the same fate as their spiritual father who will suffer an eternity separated from God forever and forever and forever, days without end. I was thinking about this as I was sitting down here this morning. You and I claim to be the children of God, don't we? We claim to have Christ as our Lord and our Savior. But you see, when you and I willingly disregard the teaching of God, we're not acting like our Father, are we? We're acting like the enemy. When you and I choose to look upon others judgmentally, Celebrating our self-righteousness, we're not acting like our Father. We're acting like the enemy. When you and I give ourselves to gossip or lust or any other sinful thing, we're not acting like our Father. We're acting like the enemy. See, God saved us to set us free so that we could uniquely celebrate the greatness of the God that He is Rejoicing in the work that he has done for us now and longing for our eternal union with him with no veil that's coming in the future. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the very clear teaching of Christ in this passage. We thank you for the way it contrasts true and false believers. God, would you show us in the depth of our heart where our lives resemble our enemy as opposed to you, our Father? Would you rid us of our own self-righteousness? Would you continually 
reveal to us our desperate need for the grace that you've given to us through Christ on the cross. That though we are undeserving and very unworthy, you chose to love us and to call us to yourself. God, help us to celebrate that. May that reality drive our hearts into a deeper commitment to you. Father, we stand to sing and celebrate the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus himself. We give you thanks and pray these things.